This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain... Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. Many of us gardeners really believe that we're here to help the planet increase biodiversity, knowing that gardening is good for our well-being. But there's one product that we use almost on a daily, weekly basis, that has got huge environmental impact. It's pretty cheap. We use it all the time. It makes our plants grow very healthily. But what is the environmental cost of using this product? So what am I talking about? Peat. But from next year, it's going to be banned for the use for amateur gardeners. So what does this mean? What are going to be the alternatives? Today, I'm going to be talking to two experts that can take us through this journey of what it means to be peat-free. I'm really excited to have two major players in the studio. Well, one is online, and that is Alistair Griffith, who is the Director of Science at the RHS. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> so great that you can be here on the Growing Greener podcast. And in the studio, um, have Nick Hamilton, and it's Brilliant to see you here, Nick. And I know we're going to hear more about you as well. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Well, great to have you both here. So this is about peat. A lot of controversy in the press, in our industry, confusion, upset, all sorts of emotions um, that you wouldn't really think that peat could give, but it does. So, Alistair, I'm going to just go in with a really simple question. What is peat? So peat is basically a sort of moss, sphagnum moss or vegetation that develops under anaerobic conditions and builds up over time. So 
that just sort of sounds pretty straightforward. But in terms of its role on the planet, what does it actually do and where do we find it? Well, it, it really is quite critical in relation to tackling both the climate and biodiversity crisis. So peatlands store twice the amount of vegetation across the whole of the planet. So, you know, massive carbon sinks, you know, think of your own sink. It's a huge sink uh, and also storage. So it stores it for thousands of years. Now, not even trees can store it for the long period of time that peatlands do. They're also fabulous for unique biodiversity and they act as huge sponges in relation to filtering our drinking water. So a really important habitat, and they're found all over the world in basically wetland areas. Yeah, I mean, I think that, as you said, you know, it's that impact of them, I think, that people haven't really got to grips with today in terms of how the role of these peatlands in the climate crisis at the moment. But, you know, if, if, if that's what peat is, talk to me about how long it actually takes to produce itself so it can be several so three millimeters over thousands of years in relation to development so it takes a long time for that to actually develop over those periods of time and the harvesting that is uh, that happens in relation to getting peat is basically um digging out thousands and thousands of years of uh, development of of that organic material Mm. I mean, I've actually stood on a peatland bog before and it is an amazing um, space to be on. The weird sponginess that it is, the fact that you look across and see vegetation that you wouldn't necessarily see uh, normally. It kind of is bleak in the one hand, but also on the other hand, incredibly beautiful. But one thing that it isn't is a garden. Yet somehow with horticulture, we've managed to um, incorporate it into gardens. This material that takes a thousand years to produce a metre, it doesn't actually seem to grow any of our, well, any of the plants that I've seen that are in our garden. How has it ended up in horticulture? It's shifted into use because it's actually such a good material in relation to its ability to buffer things like watering and, and nutrient capabilities. So it became the kind of status quo in relation to growers using that. You know, prior to that, we weren't using peat, but then this material came on board. We started using it. But now we're also shifting more to peat alternatives, which, you know, are, have proved really promising. Which is, I think, and now that's what people need to understand is the bigger picture, because I've got to be really honest, and I'm always honest about my entry in to gardening it was I was the classic later gardener and and I didn't know anything about gardening before I started to garden so I have to be honest when I sort of heard the word peat may have seen it on a compost bag I just thought it was literally a nutrient I didn't really know what it did I just was aware that we used it in in gardens I wasn't really growing anything from seed it was be to be putting into my containers so is it fair to say that maybe our understanding of peat some garden I'm not saying all, may not have really understood the things you've just said, that peat is this actual inert material that works in a different way to what I maybe might have thought. Yeah, I, I think so. And perhaps not knowing its origin uh, of where it comes and, and the impact of using that material in relation to all the things I've talked about. And, and I think often when people do 
realise and find out that that's the case is that the, there's a more of a, an impetus for people to shift and think about how they can be uh, more environmentally friendly because gardeners tend to want to work with nature, not against it. And so I found that most people, when they do find out, recognise that there are alternatives and, and, and move on to those alternatives. Mm. It is that classic, isn't it? You know, did you know? Well, I didn't. And now you do know. You can do something about it. I just want to come to you, Nick, because clearly um, your father, Jeff Hamilton, he clearly did know that there was a, a better way or a different way to garden. And, um, you know, I know that you're now looking after those gardens that your father had started off. Do you want to talk to us about how he and, and you had that knowledge, if you like, even back then, all those years ago, to not be using peat? I mean, my father was uh, already organic when he decided to go peat-free. So he'd, he'd sort of started down that, that route of environmental friendliness, as it were. But the thing that really inspired him to go peat-free was the fact that a lot of the peat in the UK that was being taken up was being taken from sites of special scientific interest, which is really what fired him up. It wasn't so much then, obviously, in those days, in the early, sort of late 80s, early 90s, it wasn't about about the climate or anything like that. It was a, a completely different reason. And he did what he always did. He did what he did with his organics. He did a trial. We tried that. I was, at the time, just setting up the nursery, actually, and we worked together with developing a, a, a compost that, that we felt happy with using coir. Can you just explain what it is? Sure, yeah. Well, coir is made from coconut husks and coconut fibre, uh, and it's predominantly from India and Sri Lanka. Now, coir is mentioned quite regularly in Victorian gardening books, so it's not something that is new. It's been around for a long time and been used, certainly in UK gardens, for a long time before. And we developed very much based on a, almost on a peat mix, actually mixing coir with sand and with bark and adding some fertilizer to it and and sort of played around with that and have been sort of playing around with it ever since really i mean the, the one thing i would say about what we grow is that we grow on the nursery we grow a lot of herbaceous perennials and with my very honest hat on i'll tell you that there are some varieties of perennials that will grow in any old rubbish that you put them in <laughs> <laughs> literally uh, so so the compost really is is irrelevant in some cases it's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency designed Future Formula, a personalized anti-aging formula prescribed by a dermatology provider to treat fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, and more. Agency has clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than over-the-counter retinol. Future Formula by Agency. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. And I guess also for yourself, you know, your dad started that. How old were you when you started to work with your dad, if you don't mind me asking? I was, uh, I moved back to Barnsdale full time, um, much to his distress. 
initially, uh, as when your children come home. Exactly, no. Uh, <laughs> very much so. Uh, but I went back to Barnsdale in, in uh, 1989, so I worked for seven years with him. I was 1989, I was 27 okay. um, when, I, when I went back there. So I worked for seven years with him, and, and we were still really developing, I suppose, the, the, the best compost when he passed away in 96. So right. Because it was it was very much the early years then, mm-hmm. um, and it's and you know I, I think the the big problem with horticulture is that it's not a cash rich industry, on the whole, mm-hmm. and therefore you know when the government many 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 years ago pulled all the research and development, you know it's difficult to be asking small nurseries to be spending money on developing their own compost yeah. and and this i think is a big problem with with moving forward but we found very early on that that just a basic mix like i say just mimicking the the, the peat mix that was being used commercially was working well enough for most things that we were growing the reason why i asked about your age in case you think how rude is she yeah. um, <laughs> There is a reason why. Um, I was just trying to get an idea as to how long you or how much experience you'd had of using peat-based products because you're a horticulturalist yourself. You didn't just turn up at your dad's and sort of say, you know, dad, can I copy you gardening? You know, you you already studied that. So um, that's why I'm interested to sort of know your um, experience of having this kind of comparison because I hear a lot of people sort of saying, it's not like peat. We can't do it because peat does this. So they're very focused, whether it's growers or gardeners, on what peat does as opposed to thinking about, I'm trying to think about how to create a growing media, if that makes sense. Yeah. One big difficulty is that peat-based compost now, if you were to go out commercially and get a wholesaler to supply you with compost, a peat-based compost will probably cost you 30% less than a peat-free compost. That helps to persuade people. And I think that it's fear of the unknown for professionals as well as amateurs. No, I think that is is a fair thing to say. A lot of people within the industry, those sort of more pioneering nurseries that had been on this for a long time, have felt it's taken too long and we should have been in a better place. I think there's two things that you sort of mentioned there about... The cheapness of peat, which does amaze me. Well, I, when we talk about sustainability in today's world, those products that can replenish themselves within one's lifetime, peat clearly can't do that. I think whichever way we're looking at it, I know that it's difficult for growers commercially, but it, it's not sustainable. It does not come back in our lifetime. It takes thousands of years. And I think, as Alistair, you touched on before, gardeners kind of inherently want to do or think that they're doing green. I wonder, Alistair, has there been any surveys done recently with the RHS members that sort of talk about this? It certainly has been a number of surveys around the RHS members and gardeners in general. And again, there is this sort of percentage of people that do uh, certainly have increased over time since uh, we did a survey in 2013 and a shift of sort of 30 percent from originally now that they know more uh, about the impact but also the scenarios you know about 50 percent of people not knowing what was in the bag and so you know that there is that aspect of of people not even knowing those sort of critical things around the choice of what they're buying now that that's improving so you know the industry 
has been working hard on something called the Responsible Sourcing Scheme. And, you know, you can go online and look at that Responsible Sourcing Scheme. It looks at seven criteria for sustainability. And that gives you a choice of what to buy in relation to your impact on the environment. So I think that's a really good scheme. But again, probably a lot of people don't know about that scheme. And so more so, you will probably start to see a little logo, the sort of A++ to E kind of scenario. But yeah, I hope that will help and that knowledge and that education and sharing that expertise. I think also for the specialist growers, it is about helping to support those specialist growers with technical support because over the years, certainly we mentioned the research and development areas have uh, have dropped over the years, but also the the technical support is also aging in relation to that support there. So, you know, bringing in someone younger to help with that technical support is really really important and sharing that knowledge uh, far and wide is going to be really important to help over the next um, few years. I just want to sort of put myself in the position now as the listener and the gardener and I'm listening to this conversation and I'm thinking, well, I'm not commercial and I didn't know what peat was and what might this all mean, specifically with plants. If I'm in a garden centre, how would I know the difference between a peat-based grown plant and a peat-free based plant. Now, obviously, I know I've got experts in the room who can start telling me you know, which plant are you talking about, Eric? I'm talking generally where this fear about, you know, plants not performing in peat-free um, products. What's the big difference? Why might a grower be reluctant to want to go to peat-free because he's obviously got to get me to buy a plant in a garden centre? As a professional wanting to go to or not wanting to go to peat free, I think some of it is cost because of the cost of the compost, but also the cost of the fact that because it's not an inert material like peat, um, it's still breaking down. There is a requirement to feed a little bit more regularly and a little bit earlier with that. Um, so that's something that I think that it is now suddenly because it's become a hot topic. I mean, I remember actually talking to my dad about when we first started becoming peat free and, and or being peat free in the nursery. And we really started the nursery from peat free, straight peat free. I didn't ever grow in any peat. I was very reluctant to say to people, these are peat free plants because it was out there and it seemed sort of uh, not wanted to offend a hippie but it seemed very hippie-ish yeah, yeah. in that respect and off the wall really whereas now I think with the with the legislation that's come out all of a sudden you will be finding labels in plants saying peat free mm-hmm. labels on pots saying peat free it'll be quite easy to see I don't think an amateur would be able to tell the difference between a peat-based compost and a and a peat-free compost just from looking at a plant. I agree that the um, the signposting definitely needs to come up very quickly mm. um, alongside uh, the legislation that's coming down the line, which which we will talk about. So let's just talk about some of the plant types that are going to be sort of having difficulty um, being grown in peat-free based compost. One of the things I would say is that I've been growing peat-free since 1992, at home but also in relation to I was at Eden Project so when I was at Eden Project I propagated and grew over 3,000 different tropical plants for the rainforest biome in peat free so it is it is possible the tricky bit is the supply chain because what we tend to do uh, in the UK is we buy tiny little plug plants and, and particularly house plants, tiny little plug plants that will have a very, very small 
uh, fraction of peat in and then we bring them into our country and we grow them on. So places in Holland, in Germany, in Belgium will all supply these these wild and mixed sort of different types of houseplants and then they'll shift onto there. So one of the tricky technical aspects is around can we grow in plug plant peat free? Now, I know it's you can propagate peat free because I've done it. it. It's the formulation of those plugs. I don't think it will take too long, though, to, to crack that. But there is a technical challenge there that needs to be cracked. So those technicalities that you're sort of seeing, so let's say with houseplants, for example, if I'm at home and I've not got anything other than a peat free based compost presumably i can still grow an indoor plant you were doing it in the biomes right so it, it, it as you're saying it can still be done yeah all my house plants have been grown in peat free and your propagation you can prop in peat free you just got to make sure that the choice of peat free when you're propagating is a propagation and cutting mix and not a multi-purpose because it's specific products for specific purposes so that cutting and potting mix will probably be a little bit finer and will probably be less nutrients in it because that's what you need when you're propagating uh, from both seed and from cuttings. But yeah, it's totally possible. I mean, I'm surrounded by houseplants here at the moment that are all peat-free. So yes, it's without a doubt you can do it. I think the challenge is when you bolt that up to the industry scale, there is this challenge around the fact that the UK have been dependent on these new materials coming in and, and a lot of the material from overseas that are in these tiny plugs. Okay, so that's really useful to understand that people can sort of know that the, that the house plants, which has obviously had a major, great big trend uh, over the last few years, um, we do need to be aware as as a consumer that many of those plants are containing peat. I think just at this point, it might be uh, worth talking about the legislation that's coming down the line, so that people can be clear and understand what's happening with this peat-free ban in the horticultural. Alistair, could you just step that out for us? Um, please. Yeah, sure. So the the bagged peat in retail will be banned and legislated by 2024. And then from what I've heard, the professional sector will have a general exemption for peat in the professional sector by the end of 2026. However, there are exemptions and these exemptions will be what industry and others will be talking about and going through uh, in a bit more detail and there are technical exemptions which includes the plug plant to a certain volume and growing mushrooms as well as is another exemption linked to that and those exemptions will uh, have to have a clear road plan but they'll be up until 2030 in relation to that there may be other technical ones that link into that but a lot of the the technical elements might be around difficulty of growing and demonstrating that if there's a demonstration of difficulty then there will need to be a clear roadmap in relation to getting to 2030. If you go to a garden centre as an amateur visitor to that garden centre after 2024 you will not find bags of compost with peat in. Okay tick. 
The thing that's going to be a little bit more of a transition is the plants that we buy. So that's what I think that's been the new thing, I think, that's been brought to the table to gardeners. Whereas they may have been aware of compost, we've spoken about it before on Gardeners World, we've raised in this issue. But I think it's the fact of people going out and buying their plants. And to your point, Nick, this is why the industry, if we can start to signpost those plants that are being grown peat-free, that may be something, again, that the consumer can start to make considered choices for, because that's going to come later, the ban of peat in those products. Yeah, I think we have to be careful that we don't victimise growers. We have to remember it is still legal to, to grow in a peat compost, peat-based compost, and, and it will be up until the dates that, that Alistair gave there, 2026, you know, and, and growers will do that. And, and a lot of them I know, you know, obviously I, I talk to, to growers and there are quite a lot of growers who are already starting to grow plants in peat-reduced compost. So they're gradually easing their way to it, a lot of them. Now, you know, I think we have to see this thing naturally run out but I, I do think that it is important for people who do specifically want just to buy peat-free because of their view. It's almost like you know, like going into a, a restaurant and, and on the menu not telling you where things have come from. You know, whether it's vegetarian, whether it's vegan, whatever. You know, so I think they, the, the choice it needs to be there. But I, I think that it's important not to victimise the growers that have no other choice but to see that through until the, legally they have to grow peat-free. No, I think that's a really good point there, Nick, because, I mean, the the experience that I've had by just talking to people, obviously I am not a grower and I know that it's a lot more than just saying, oh, just get on to peat-free. There's, there's you know, watering and there's the issue with nutrient leaching. There's there's a lot of issues that are there and obviously it's a cost. People are running their businesses. So I do understand that and try to definitely listen and understand more. But I think that for, for us gardeners who are getting lots of messages about the environment, wanting to do good, as it were. It's just trying to unravel some of these difficulties of understanding so that people can make, like you say, an informed choice. I think, Alistair, one of the things that comes up a lot with regards to the alternative materials to peat, things like coir, we, we mentioned that before, there'll often be a kind of a slam dunk in the room. Well, actually, that's got much of more of a carbon footprint by bringing it across the other side of the world. And, and also, we don't know the impact of growing and harvesting these other materials. Have you got any spotlight on that at the moment? Because I know that you're doing some research around all of this. Yeah, so we're looking we're looking at all the alternatives. And I think, you know, in the, in the long, medium to longer term, locally sourced products is going to be the solution. And a bit like the electric car, Coir is one of those products that we need to continue to use as part of that transition until we look at some of these other products. However, what I would say is that some of the research that we have looked at is that, you know, you've got to take into account that those peatlands store more carbon than twice the amount of vegetation and they store it for thousands of years. Any other product is insurmountable compared to that aspect. But also when you look at uh, research that's published the carbon footprint of coir versus others, it's significantly smaller in removing that and bringing that. And that's because transportation is by ship rather than by large wagons and other things, which means that it can be more carbon hungry in relation to that production. So I think, you know, definitely that, that coir is actually something that we will need to continue to use. Also, if that coir isn't harvested from Sri Lanka and India and others, what it tends to do is it tends to rot on the ground and uh, emit methane. 
which creates another issue. So we've just got to make sure that, you know, we're thinking about the, the full picture here around those aspects. And the other exciting thing about Coya is that we already have one million uh, metric cubic tonnes of Coya being used by food producers in this country. And what we know is that you can actually recycle that coir two or three times. In fact, there's one nursery called Gebbin Green that's doing houseplant production, produces lilies uh, as cut flower for um, supermarkets and has recycled their coir on site 16 times. So, you know, by using that coir and recycling it, you then reduce its footprint. So I think we just have to be more clever about how we use our existing raw materials. But also, I think, like I said, in the medium to longer term, we need to be looking at perhaps things like willow and willow as a composting medium, which we can grow, uh, you know, close by uh, to growing media manufacturers and use that as a, as a way of carbon sequestration storage in use. No, that's really interesting facts. They're really, really good. So uh, it's been great to hear about the, the wider issue, the, the environmental issue, obviously. I think for listeners, it's really good always to hear about the um, production and the commercial side, because we're the ones that trot into a shop, pick up our plant without a clue of what's going on with it or our compost bags. And now it can means that we can start asking questions, maybe you know, start even asking the garden centres, have we got it? Because it's all about supply and demand as well. If if, I think if growers can really see that the consumer understands and wants and needs also the peat-free, they'll feel more confident in their trials, know that we're not going to abandon them. You know, as you said, Nick, we don't want anybody feeling victimised here. We want to, everybody to get into a better place, which is great. There's a lot that gardeners can do, actually, to really help industry. So I've had sight of the new figures of peat use in the, in the UK and a significant shift has happened. It was 1.7, but let me just tell you, it's gone below a million now. So that's really good. But what is also good is if gardeners get composting, they could half the need for growers. And then if they do even better, if they put mulch on their guns and don't choose the peat-free material, choose anaerobic digester, that's another batch. Get a wormery because that's fun. Keep it clean. So in your bins, make sure you you know you're getting rid of the glass and the what's it. So that can then go to growing media manufacturers as green waste, which will dilute further. And then the other thing is to ask your gardeners to actually start to provide people with peat-free plants because that will then create market demand, uh, which will then shift the markets in Holland and others because as soon as Holland hear that Asda and others are wanting peat-free, it will nudge the Europeans to give us peat-free plug plants. In terms of some of your sort of top tips and some of your real success stories that you've had, whether it's perennial plants or shrubs or anything like that, anything that you've grown from home, which you kind of thought... Mm, I'm not sure if that's going to work, Pete Freak. Is there anything you can tell us in terms of your, your top your top winners? We'll hear a couple of failures if you really feel we need to. <laughs> Clearly, it's a balanced it's a balanced conversation that we always try to have. <laughs> but uh, anything you want to share with us? So my top tips are: make sure you choose a very good quality growing media so when you go in a, a peat free one, make sure that it's trialed and tested, and it is good. And there's some really good ones out there that you can use the other thing is make sure that the bag is in dirt if it's been sat around on the garden center shelf for a long time peat free will tend to deteriorate and you won't get a good product choose the right product for the right place so make sure if you're doing cuttings and seeds get cutting and seed peat free 
Um, and I guess the other thing is irrigate little and often. Stick your finger in because peat free looks dry on top when it isn't. I guess that would be my top tip and feeding. You might need to feed a bit earlier than than previously. Yeah, that's that's really, really good advice. And you know where I'm coming next, Nick? Yeah. I'm coming to you. <laughs> Thank you. 30 just... years, you've got to condense into about 20 seconds. <laughs> Alistair's just said all of the things I was about to say. The, the only thing I would say is, is uh, I think, you know, talking to, to visitors to the gardens and the nurseries is that, you know, people who've tried peat-free have tried it and used it exactly the same as peat, and it isn't exactly the same as peat. And that is the most important thing, I think, is to go with everything that Alistair said, is is to to take in everything that happens and to acknowledge that, that maybe you need to do different things. So if things aren't working properly, think about it, rationalise it and understand. So the feeding thing is a, is a big thing. Um, and I have to say that, that it is the one thing that I've had problem with with staff um, on the nursery is over watering, you know, where they think that it, it is like that. So we don't generally have any failures because we know what we're doing, you see. Top answer. Um, but, but, <laughs> but generally it's the things that, that, that really rot off very quickly. And, and surprisingly enough, uh, you know, the, the delphiniums I've found do, you know, slightly too much water and they, they, they will rot very quickly. But I think that, you know, that's the plant anyway. Yeah. But it is, it is sometimes difficult to make people understand when a plant needs water yeah. and when it doesn't. No, that's that's really um, useful advice. And I think, you know, I think between the RHS and obviously down at Barnsdale and there are lots of other gardens, garden centres, suppliers of peat-free product or peat-reduced, that I think really it's down to us as gardeners as well to kind of get a bit more involved, go and have a look and see how these things are. And, and it's the joy of gardening, isn't it? It's the, once again, it's back to your own trial and error. Yeah, it's all about learning. Every day's a learning curve. Every day. You're not wrong there, Nick. You, you're always learning. <laughs> Every day I learn something new about gardening. Said the professor of science. Uh, <laughs> fabulous. I'm glad if you're learning every day, that makes me feel a lot better, actually, Alistair. <laughs> Well, thank thank you both so much um, for that. Um, I know it's a, it's a it's a topic that people have been a little bit worried about, but I think that there's some some better clarity through that now, and we go onwards. So, thank you both so much for coming and um, onto Growing Greener. Pleasure. Thank you. Make sure to subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode. New episodes will be released every Thursday. For more information on everything we've discussed today, go to gardenersworld.com 